you'll open your Bibles to John 17, continuing in our study of the Lord Jesus and his high priestly prayer. John chapter 17, I want to read beginning in verse 20. I do not ask, this is Jesus praying to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, speaking of that they be sanctified in the truth or set apart in the truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, my disciples at present, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, and they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you have loved me. This morning I want to focus mainly on the idea of uh, the oneness spoken of here, the idea of unity in the context of the church that's in this prayer. And I want us to see, uh, last week we had one main overarching point, which was a prayer for the blossoming body of Christ. A prayer for the blossoming body of Christ. This week we'll have another main overarching point, a prayer for unity in the blossoming body of Christ. A prayer for unity in the blossoming body of Christ. Now under that main point and theme, there'll be uh, three subpoints: A, B, and C. Letter A, unity in Christ that is derived from the unity of the one triune God. Unity in Christ that is derived from the unity of the one triune God. It's clear that the Lord Jesus is praying that they be one or there be some type of unity. It's a unity that is in Christ. And this unity in and of itself is not only about people coming together, but it is a a unity founded in the very essence of God. Last week I mentioned some of this, and we want to just reiterate it or iterate it once again so that it gets your mind turning. This unity that is in Christ is derived from the unity of the one true God. He does not ask for them to become little gods. Now some people read these passages. He says in verse 21, that they may all be one even as... You, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. When he uses this phrase, even as, it's, he does not ask for them to, in a one-to-one correlation, there's a word for that, univocally, okay, that's not a word we use often, but it's a good word here. Um, sometimes you'll see it and you'll, it'll say univocal. Okay, you'll kind of parse it out, uni-vocal. Well, that word means one-to-one correlation. 
He's not asking here that they share in the one essence between father and son in a one-to-one correlation. He's not asking that they become little gods. It's as Thomas Manton said, the word even as or just as is not an exact equality, but some resemblance. Some resemblance. We see earlier in this very passage or this prayer, the same word is used there in verse 14b and 16. He says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. This phrase is not a phrase of exact one-to-one correlation. It's just giving us the idea of some resemblance or similarity. George Newton said, this is a similitude, not an equality. Charles Spurgeon goes further. He says, the parallel is drawn by way of quality, not of equality. Still, there is a likeness, though it be only that of a drop in the sea. Now, what is that likeness that Spurgeon speaks of? I think he's referring to Genesis chapter 2. The idea is, is that we are made in the image of God. Let us make man in our own image. There is some likeness, but it's not a one-to-one correlation where God made another God. Right? That would be impossible and it makes no sense. So Jesus here is being very similar in his phrasing and his wording in the prayer. He's not saying, God, I ask that they be one in the very essence that we are one and they share the exact one-to-one correlation of essence. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, may they be one even as. Similarly. Now that's, I can never say that word. There's two words I really struggle with. Well, actually, three. Similarly, I, I got it then, didn't I? You heard it. Y'all mark it down. The other one is social security. I can never say that. If I get in a conversation and that comes up, I say to people, I know, social security, social, social, social security. Similarly, this is the idea. It's not one-to-one correlation exactness. It's something similar. It's the idea that we have been made into the image of God and he's asking for a return in the church to a functioning of the way man was made in the garden. They were made in the image of God. May they be one in the church. These believers, the disciples that are present here and now, they're going to go out and preach. When they preach, there's going to be those that hear. Those that hear, they're going to believe. Just as these disciples have believed, those are going to believe. And when they believe, will you give them a oneness that is similar to that oneness we have, Father? You and I. Father and Son, make it similar like it was in the garden when they were made in our image. 
And they would worship and commune in that way. It's a good reminder, too, of a word that we've used quite often throughout the prayer that Jesus points out. It's that word keep, keep them. He does not ask for them to become little gods. He asks for them to be kept in the oneness of the triune God. You know, it's, it's really a, a little bit of a struggle as your children grow up. One of the things that you go through is after you have children and you have these little babies, there comes a time where you're actually going to let somebody else watch that child so you can go somewhere. And for a mom and dad, for the first time, that can be a little bit uncomfortable. You haven't left this child for a lengthy period of time. And then now you're going to let somebody else watch this child to keep them. But here the son has all assurance in the father. Because he and the father are of the same essence. They are very God of very God. Both. One in essence. Truly father, truly son. The father is not the son. The son is not the father. And yet at the same time, they are one. And now the son says, keep them. Keep them in our oneness. And I trust in our essence. The essence of the one true living God. He wants them to be kept in that oneness. But that exact oneness is not then attributed to the disciples in the same exact way. They don't become little gods. Thirdly, under letter A, he asks for them to have unity in the blessings of the oneness of the triune God. First of all, one of the blessings is, is that we are in Christ. Disciples are in Christ, and because we are in Christ, that means we are in fellowship with the Father. Our fellowship has been changed. Our relationship has been changed with God the Father because of being in Christ. He says, you Father and me, and I and you. He says, they all may be one, that they also may be in us. To be in Christ means to be in the Father in that sense. That one could stand before the Father safely. This is a great blessing. Do you think about sometimes stop in your day and in your week and think about the great blessing that's been given to you in Christ Jesus? That one day you will be able to stand before the one true living holy God and enter into his presence and not be immediately destroyed. That's a great blessing to be in Christ that we could be in that kind of communion even with the Father through Christ. There's another part of this blessing. 
we become a part of a family that has a message to go out to the world. He says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The great message of believers, the great message of the church of Christ is that God sent His Son into the world to live a perfect life and die a sinner's death and that He was raised on the third day. That's the greatest of all messages. And disciples, the disciples who are in Christ get to be a part of that blessing a part of that blessing of that message going forward to the world, even in persecution, even in trial, even in great frustration and, and, and all of the things that the world will throw at us. When we think about the whole message going out and the union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being evidenced in the church. It's a glorious happening that God Himself could work in this world in such a way that we as people, sinful humans, could be used to bring about further blessing. Do you view the gospel as a blessing to the world? Do you view the fact that you as a professing believer are not only blessed in Christ, but it's a blessing that you can go and live unto Christ in a fallen world? The image of God being restored, although still marred in some respects in our remaining flesh, we're still a part of the blessing going out to the world. No reason to lie, to hide that light under the, under the basket, is it? Don't stamp it out. You're a blessing to the world, even though the world doesn't know it. One writer says the whole Trinity is involved, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is first a supernatural unity, defined by and included in the unity of the Father and the Son. He goes on, he says, the life we share as Christians is therefore nothing less than a participation in the life of the Godhead. This does not mean that we have become, in some sense, divine. It means that we are, by His sovereign grace, caught up in the saving work of God and made in Christ to be one people. There's supposed to be a unity among the body of Christ. A unity when we go out of this place. A unity while we're here together in this place. A unity in difficult matters, a unity in joyous matters. Over the last few years, we've been able to witness several weddings in the church. 
and to see at different times the body of Christ, people there at these weddings rejoicing in these marriages. There's great joys to see a new baby born, to watch children grow up, Sometimes we have to deal with difficult matters and be in unity. And we're doing it all to the glory of Christ because we're a part of his kingdom. And whatever the kingdom is, we're showing it to the world. And the church is the very essence of the kingdom explained. Well, let her be. Unity in Christ that knows no cultural boundary. There was a unity in Christ that's not of exact essence of the oneness of the Father and Son. It's not univocal. It's a unity based on being made in the image of God. But the unity that he's talking about here coming out of this blessing to the the whole of the world in the new covenant. Well, this is a unity in Christ that knows no cultural boundary. Notice he uses the word world, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus included two groups of people in the new covenant, Jews and Gentiles. Now, for the Jewish hearer, And for that disciple who's a Jew standing right there listening to this prayer, it still has to be a little difficult to understand that the whole of the new covenant is going out to the world. Remember, the Jews looked at the Gentiles as those sorry dogs returning to their vomit. That's what they were referred to by many Jews. And here Jesus in this prayer is saying, I want them to have a unity in Christ that knows no cultural boundary. It doesn't mean that all cultures will agree with each other on everything. But it does mean all thoughtful, professing Christians ought to agree on a lot of things. That's the kind of unity that we ought to have, even if we have different cultures or different backgrounds. Now, for most of us, uh, much of our culture is alike. It's not often too big of a problem, probably, for many of us in the church. But we ought to be able to meet with other Christians who don't have the same cultural background and be in agreement with them on a lot of things, especially those biblical things that are of the utmost importance. Because the unity that the church has in Christ knows no cultural boundary. I remember some years ago getting to meet some Christians from Russia And uh, they could speak little English, and I could speak no Russian. (laughs) 
Um, well, I probably could in my own mind because I can speak gibberish, but that's what other languages sound like, don't they? You hear somebody else speaking in a different language, and to you, if you don't know it at all, it's gibberish. So in my own mind, I'm hearing these people talk to each other, and they're going back and forth, and I'm going, I don't know the thing they're saying. But in the moments I sat down with them, and they could speak in some broken English, things from the Bible, all of a sudden there's for lack of sounding sappy, there's hearts united, minds united in the truth of the gospel. And here Jesus is saying, you Jews, you're going to be united with these Gentiles. Can you imagine the Jewish here going, what? Could it really happen? Some Gentiles begin to think, what? Jews are going to look at us this way and we're going to look at them that way? This is what the gospel does. It's a unity in Christ that knows no cultural boundary. Reminds us of Jesus speaking in John 10 of being the good shepherd. And he knows his own and his own know him. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them in also and they will hear my voice. And they will become one flock with one shepherd. That's the unity that the Lord Jesus is praying for. Letter C. It's a unity in Christ that carries with it responsibilities. It's a unity in Christ that knows no cultural boundary, but it's also a unity in Christ that carries with it responsibilities. One writer says, this carries with it a vital responsibility as it is the great dignity and privilege of believers to be one. So their improving of this privilege and living in unity is the sum and substance of their happiness and the means of obtaining all other blessings. Unity is important not only to the blessings going out, but unity is important to the very sum sum and substance of our happiness or our joy. Isn't there greater joy when there's unity than when there's disunity? When there's peace, there's greater joy, there's happiness. The unity in Christ, or unity in Christ that carries with it responsibilities, is the context of us learning to live in peace with one another. And we can only do that in Christ. Jesus speaks of it this way in verse 22. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. The son, he gloried in the father. Their union was one in such a way that everything the son did glorified the father. When you talk about one of the glories of the very being of God is he has all joy and happiness in himself. 
He doesn't need something else to gain happiness. He doesn't need something else to help him increase his joy. God is and he is joyful. He is that which is good and right and there is all happiness in himself. That means that to be one through the Son gives us a responsibility to live in unity that we would seek joyfulness and peace in the gospel. Because that's who God is. That's who God is. One pastor noted this, speaking of how this was working out among the disciples of that time and how it would work out after the day of Pentecost. He said, it was easy to make them difficult to make them disciples. Speaking of, it was easy for God to create them. God creating man was nothing for God. He spoke everything into existence. It was easy to make them Difficult to make them disciples, but nearly impossible to make them one. That often is true for us as humans, isn't it? We struggle to have real, genuine unity one with another. On a human level, just look at the world around us. Not saying there's not people that don't want to be gracious to each other in some way, but on a, a world level, it always seems to fall apart somewhere. But we see it in the church too, don't we? The pre- professing Christian church seems to have some great trouble in coming together and being in unity. Now, there's some reasons for that, and we'll address that at the end, but... It's almost impossible to make them one. Thinking about the, the motto of the CBs, if you've ever done any reading on them, their motto is, the difficult we do immediately, the impossible takes a little longer. Thankfully, our Lord... He accomplishes all things for his good pleasure because he has all power and nothing will thwart his will and nothing will stop his grace. For he will have mercy on whom he has mercy and compassion whom he has compassion. Newton says this unity is a matter of wondrous difficulty and of high concernment. Therefore, Jesus praised the Father to do this because he saw how hard it would be for them. Why do they need the unity? Well, because there's going to be great struggles in their human nature. They're going to have a lot of likeness, but they're also going to have a lot of differences. Don't we start to see some of the differences among the disciples even while Jesus is on the earth? I mean, Jesus is right there with them and they're having their differences. 
You got two brothers trying to decide who's going to be on the right hand or left. And their mother even enters the conversation. And the Lord Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking for. I mean, he's right there and they're having some difficulty. And then the other disciples are looking at the two brothers going, who do they think they are? I want to be on his right hand. You see. Well, Jesus is praying this prayer because he knows of this great difficulty. He knows how hard it will be. Verse 23, he says, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. This word perfected is the idea of something being completed. It, it's not the sense of, of being purely righteous in and of itself, but it being completed. Now, what's he asking or how is he asking it to be completed? I in them and you in me. It can only be completed for those who are in Christ. He's not asking it to be completed by the work of the man. Once again, he's making this appeal to the Father on the basis of the very essence of the one true living God. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity, completed in unity. We may have disunity in certain places, but we can't have disunity in the gospel. We can't. Why? Why this unity? So, once again, that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. One of the great concerns of the gospel is that humanity sees the very love of God. Now you do recognize that's important because one day there will be the wrath of God that comes and there will be those who are in Christ and they will see the love of God in a way they've never seen it before when they see judgment. You and I think now of the love of God and we're so thankful for it but there's a coming day we'll even be more thankful than we are now. We should be striving and looking towards it. But the love of God will be made manifest in the day of judgment in a way we could never see. But right now on this earth, we're supposed to be those in unity, taking the very love of God into the world. When individual churches hate each other, how do you think the world sees the love of God? When groups of churches hate each other, how do, you think, how do you think the world sees the love of God? When individuals in churches hate each other, how do you think the world sees the love of God? Well, I want to leave you with three thoughts. <clears throat> These are more practical in the context of the whole of kind of church life coming out of this prayer. Number one, we are not in unity with some groups due to heretical doctrine. We are not in unity with some groups due to heretical doctrine.
Some people want to read this prayer and they want to read other uh, portions of the scripture that talks about unity and they act like there's no dividing lines. Now, the church does need to be that group that shows the love of God to the world. And yet at the same time, there are healthy dividing lines. There are places that we just can't have unity with some groups. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, they all have a heretical view of the Trinity in Christ. Now, I'm going to use a name. I'm not trying to be ugly or mean, just being honest. I've never met the man. If I did meet him, I would want to be gracious, and he seems like he'd be a very interesting person to talk to. T.D. Jakes, he's a oneness Pentecostal. He does not hold the Trinity in proper view. He does not hold Christ in proper view. I cannot be in unity with T.D. Jakes, biblically. I could shake his hand. I could have dinner with him. He seems like he'd be fun to laugh with. He's got kind of a big laugh if you've ever heard it. It'd be an enjoyable time. But there'd be certain places I could not be in with unity, to have unity with him, and that would be on the doctrine of Christ on the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's important that I understand that. There may be Mormons, and I've known some. We can be thankful for some of their graciousness and and those things which they display in some certain situations and in the community. I may vote politically in places with them, but there are certain places I can't have unity with them. They do not hold the doctrine of Christ properly. They do not see Christ as the very Son of God and deity. The same is true for Jehovah's Witnesses. Doesn't mean we have to scream and yell at them and whatever else when they come to our door, but it does mean we have to say to them, I'm sorry, uh, but you're not welcome to speak of those things in my home uh, because those things are untrue. You're not holding Christ right. Christ is Jehovah. He's the king. And they don't see that. Therefore, Christian disunity with them is well-founded. We have a good reason to have disunity with them. So Christ here is not imploring us to just simply put good doctrine aside and say, well, let's just all love each other and act like it's no big deal. He's not saying that. He's talking about real, actual disciples. Disciples who are believers in him properly. Believers in who he is and what he did and what he is doing according to the scripture. And that he is the very son of God come to this earth In human flesh, sinless flesh. So we are not in unity with some groups due to heretical doctrine. Number two, we are not in unity with some groups due to serious error in doctrine. There's a difference between heresy and error. Heresy is something that's damnable. If you believe that certain doctrine that way, you're so out of step that that's not even proper in the doctrine of salvation and you've missed the whole of the gospel and there's no salvation in that doctrinal view. But there is also error in doctrine and we are not in unity with some groups due to serious error in doctrine. 
One of these groups is the Roman Catholics. We're not saying that every Roman Catholic is unconverted. For among some of the Roman Catholic Church, there is heresy. And among some of the Roman Catholic Church, they may not believe the heresy, but they believe things in great error. So inside a group that large with millions and millions and millions of people and millions of religious leaders in that group, you can't just simply say one group is all damned. Yet at the same time, if there are those in the Roman Catholic Church that are converted, they're converted in spite of Rome. Because the teaching of Rome has some heresy and lots of error. But there are times when we may look to those groups and say we're thankful. Many Mormons are against abortion. We would be thankful for that. Many Roman Catholics are against abortion. We can be thankful for that. We could hold some hand of fellowship and say, on that issue, we agree. But that doesn't mean we're in full unity. And it's okay. Sometimes division is necessary, and even the scripture shows that. There can be the times like Jerusalem and Antioch having their division. Paul and Barnabas having a division. We don't understand all that went on between Paul and Barnabas in fullness, but in some way we have to say that the Lord was using it. Even the point that Paul comes back later and says, John Mark's my friend, he's helpful. There can be these places of error that can even be solved. And the scripture shows that as well. But we don't have to have unity with every single group that calls themselves Christian. We need to have our unity in Christ. And that means to have our unity in the word of God. So we're not in unity with some groups due to heretical doctrine. We're not in unity with some groups due to error in doctrine. And we're not in unity with some groups due to remaining flesh and doctrine. We're not in unity with some groups due to remaining flesh and doctrine. Sometimes our remaining flesh gets involved in doctrine and we can't have unity with one another because of those issues. We have to look and be careful that we not make something a hill to die on that shouldn't be a hill to die on. I remember some years ago going to serve a church, and I'd only been there about a year, and I was sitting outside with some men after one of the Sunday evening services. And as we sat on the steps, this whole discussion came up about uh, eschatology, end times, and they had this big discussion going on about dispensationalism. And as they began to talk, one man was espousing uh, a seven-year tribulation, and one man was saying, well, yeah, but what about the pre-tribulation? And one man was saying, well, what about the post-tribulation? And another man was saying, yeah, but what about the mid-tribulation? 
And I'm sitting there in my head swimming. And at that moment, I became, became a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. As I listened to these men, they, the more they talked, the more vigor came in the conversation. Before a while, there's, and I thought, I'm about to separate. Sometimes our remaining flesh gets into these things, and we make things a hill to die on that are not a hill to die on. And this really impedes our unity in the church, and we have to be very careful. J.C. Ryle says, Jesus prays for unity, not uniformity. There may be uniformity without unity and unity without uniformity. Not every Reformed Baptist church looks the same. And that's okay. Not every Reformed Baptist church has the same liturgy we have here. That's okay. That's okay. There does need to be unity, but sometimes we won't have uniformity. We also need to make sure that we think of being cordial in our unity. Or as one writer says, there needs to be a collegiality. I have a pastor friend. He's, uh, he and another pastor friend, they're, they're both, one of them's in their mid-70s, another one's in his mid-80s. And they've been friends for 45-plus years. And they have debated Baptist church history for almost all of those 45 years. I was privy to one of those conversations via phone. I was visiting one of the men, and the other man called and put the man on speakerphone, and they start debating the trail of blood. Do Baptists link all the way back to John the Baptist? And they're just going back and forth. And this other pastor, he is just adamant. All Baptists are linked to John the Baptist. It is a trail of blood all the way through. And I'm sitting there listening to them going back and forth. And as the conversation ends, I, I look over at the pastor that I'm standing there with. And he smiles and he says to the man on the phone, Bill, you know I love you. They love each other. Sometimes we have those kind of discussions and they can be collegial. It's one of those things where we have to make sure we don't go to the nth degree. We don't want to be like Linus from Charlie Brown who says, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand. I think Thomas Watson, or Thomas Manton, excuse me, says something we need to adhere. He says, acknowledge God in this matter. The Son prays for unity. Let us pray for this too. Before the division is broken out, and after divisions are broken out, this is the best means to settle the church. And it reminded me of Psalm 133.1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you're merciful to us in your word. And as we've been instructed, we come praying and asking for unity. Unity in this local body according to your word. And we pray for unity among other local bodies and even our fellowship with those local bodies. That we have a fellowship that's based on the truth of your word, knowing and understanding the truth of your gospel. Lord, we are thankful that we are not being kept by our own righteousness. But we are kept in the very righteousness of your son Christ. And we are thankful that all our hope is in him and that he has given us to you. All glory and honor be to you, the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.